Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi from the Energy Research Team here at TD Cowan. We've got another podcast installment in our Advanced Nuclear Series, this time with Holtec founder and CEO, Dr. Chris Singh. Holtec does a lot of stuff in the nuclear power field, but is probably most well known for making dry casks that are used for spent nuclear fuel storage and for nuclear plant decommissioning. Holtec also has an SMR design, which they call the SMR 160. We go through the technology, timeline to commercialization, and Holtec's unique integrated manufacturing model. We also discuss the company's plans to deploy the SMR 160 at their decommissioning sites in the U.S. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Chris Singh from Holtec. All right, so let's get started. Chris, thanks so much. Maybe just to kick it off, you could Give us a little bit of background on on yourself and Holtec. I think Holtec's involved in a bunch of different businesses, and I think it might help set the table for your involvement in SMRs down the road. As far as uh, I am personally concerned, I don't like to talk about myself too much, but I, I'll tell you in a few sentences. I received my PhD from University of Pennsylvania back in 1972 and uh, in applied mechanics, mechanical engineering. And uh, in the beginning, I was more involved in doing research, but I realized that you, to change the kind of change we want to make, that I wanted to make, I had to get involved in, in more practical uh, innovations and doing things that will indeed have an effect on, on society. So that kind of gradually took me into... Uh, uh, working for a company that was a small manufacturing company where I learned how to manufacture uh, into uh, consulting, technical work, solving problems at nuclear plants. I have been to, to practically every nuclear plant in the country. And I have equipment that I have designed that are practically in every plant in the country. So that's how my knowledge and experience about uh, nuclear power plants began back in 1971 when I was still a graduate student to today. It's uh, really seeing the plants up close and trying to fix their problems, operating problems. And today, Holtec is in, in every aspect of nuclear energy, just about every aspect. We uh, we have been quite prominent, as you would know, in, in spent fuel management, used fuel, wet storage, dry storage, uh, fuel transport, um, waste, nuclear waste management. Uh, that has been our main activity. We have also uh, uh, looked at the way to make uh, nuclear energy more palatable, more acceptable, or safe, if one could say, for for the public to accept, and I think that we are succeeding at that. That really is the the main focus today at Holtec. Our small modular reactor is is uh, being worked on vigorously. We have a large number of people working on it here. Uh, we developed a uh, the interim storage facility for nuclear fuel. 
that's been licensed uh, to be to be installed in New Mexico. The state new government in state of New Mexico doesn't want it, so it's become a problem. Uh, but we did that also to make nuclear more acceptable to the public. You know, we go to a power plant where we, we own four nuclear sites in the U.S. And when we go to those sites and we say we're going to build an SMR here, they say, well, how about the fuel? You're going to give us more, more fuel to store here, more more waste? That's always a problem. So we said, heck, we're going to develop a facility, license it. Now it's up to the federal government to act to allow us to start using the facility. Yeah, and yeah. I look forward to talking through a lot of those, hopefully in, in other podcasts, um, because there is an awful lot to discuss um, with you guys. But maybe on your SMR, SMR 160, how long have you been working on this um, on this project and um, maybe talk about what you've accomplished so far in the development of that. We started working on SMR-160 in 2011, uh, right after Fukushima. Now, you say that's kind of strange, isn't it? Because I think that that, uh, I personally thought at the time that the world needs a safer, a significantly safer nuclear technology. And the existing fleet of nuclear reactors, while they are extremely safe, clearly have not met public's expectation. If you have a TMI, if you have a Fukushima, then you have clearly not met the level of safety expectation that the public expects. You know, public is perfectly okay if a chemical uh, railroad car derails and people have to be evacuated. That's two days news and then it's forgotten. If you have a, a, an event like TMI where nobody died, but that's still remembered. So the expectation of the public uh, for nuclear power is much, much higher than it is for other, other industries. So we said we're going to develop something that is unconditionally safe. And safety is number one goal. Uh, it is because it is unconditionally safe. It's a la rather large in size, its component, than they would be for a, a traditional reactor that is built today. But our focus is that no matter what, you will not have an accident that will cause a release of radioactivity to the environment. My understanding, if we look at, to compare to a larger reactor like an AP-1000 in these kind of Gen 3 plus reactors that we've seen, um, they do have a lot of safety features built in that are that are enhanced from prior designs. What additional does SMR 160 do? You know, we we hear about passive safety as an example and walk away safe. What does SMR 160 do that is even further enhanced beyond that? Yeah, the the current generation of reactors, the most recent AP 1000, you know, they have a pump that runs the reactor coolant, right? We have no pump. We don't have any pumps or motors in any safety function, whether it is normal operation or an postulated accident event. No pumps. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have pumps, but they are not in the safety role. We can do without them. They are just there as belt and suspender. The real, real workhorse for our reactor is gravity, force of gravity. That is 
what drives every single system in our reactor. And that is why, that's how it is different. We have 160 megawatt, we designed it because we thought that that will be the, the quantity of heat energy, the quantity of radiation energy in the reactor is reasonably small. So even if, uh, even, even if people didn't quite believe in it, they would know that the extent of release to the environment will be a fraction of a large reactor. So this is kind of building confidence, uh, getting the getting a few built, and then we will we already have uh, designs uh, going uh, where we can have two SMR-160s conjugated using common facilities. Uh, that's that's already in our license, going to be in our license application. We are already developing for the future where we'll have two loop reactor. So it will be 300 and it comes out to about 350 megawatt. Um, that will be all in one containment building to bring the cost down again. We are also looking further down the step. We will have four loop. That will be 640 megawatt. But we're going to do that in steps. You know, we have to remember a real jump in technology creates also concerns in, in, in people who look at it, including interveners and extreme, you know, people who, who challenge nuclear to begin with. So we're going to start with 160, make some of them, make 320, really 350 um, that are together, two containments right next to each other, and uh, use common facilities, and then we will go to double loop, you know, in, in single containment. That's the plan. So we're not stopping at 160 megawatts. So there are two other companies that are having some decent commercial success with light water small modular reactors, right? So I'm thinking of New Scale and GE Hitachi. How, how does your offering compare or differ to those? Are there you mentioned the the gravity uh, as a as a way of cooling, and I think that is that kind of is similar to what New Scale is doing, but. Maybe just talk about some of the design features that might be different in with what you're offering. You know, GE is a boiling water reactor. Okay, boiling water reactor is a is a simple uh, concept compared to a pressurized water reactor because you're taking the steam from the reactor and running the turbine with it. You don't have an intermediate steam generator like we do in pressurized water reactors. But there's a price to pay when you do that. Then your steam theoretically has radioactive contaminants, comes right out of the reactor. So you, you, the whole plant becomes contaminated. And you cannot use that steam for process applications. And we have designed our reactor so you can take the steam and use it in a cement plant or a paper mill. You know, you can, in any process application, that steam is clean. You can use it. Uh, the boiling water reactor is simplified. It's a direct conversion from reactor steam to energy. So it's a, it's a less complicated plant, but it has that limitation that I just mentioned. Uh, new scale is a pressurized water reactor plant, just like ours, but there is a fundamental difference between us. And these are, you know, these are two schools of thought. Uh, they, I don't mean to, uh, to. Uh, 
denigrate what their school they're thinking is, but this is how we differ. New scale uh, is design their reactor so the steam generator is inside the reactor vessel. Optically, that is a major difference. The DOE had coined the term integral reactor, meant that the steam generator is inside the reactor vessel. We looked at that requirement and we told DOE at the time that we don't think it's a good idea and we will not propose one. So it's a fundamental difference. Now, the reason why we would not propose one will take me two hours to explain to you. But the fundamentally, from based on basic uh, heat transfer, thermodynamics, structural mechanics, we did not think that uh, that is the right path for us. So we diverged from the beginning. New Scale was developing an integral reactor. We were developing a, a situation where the steam generator is very close to the reactor, but not inside it. Okay? And our steam generator is about these, you know, weighs 800 tons. It's a fairly large vessel. We could not put it in the reactor vessel. The steam that is produced in new scale is inside the reactor vessel in a separate heat exchanger called the steam generator. We did not think that's a practical or feasible design, at least from our scientific perspective. So we, we have always, always uh, stayed with a, a reactor where the steam generator is a discrete vessel, but it's right next to the reactor. And we, we have some inventions on how to do it so they can be together. They are, they are really coupled right, right at, this, at the neck. You know, so that that is the uh, that's the main difference. Uh, there are, of course, many differences because of it, but I think uh, New Scale has done well by increasing their power output per reactor. That's what they are relicensing. I understand, which is good. Look, I want them to succeed. I want everybody to succeed uh, because the world market is so huge. The demand for clean energy is so enormous that none of us can do it alone. On the point of steam, so one of the things as some of these Gen 4 reactors have started you know, talking about their plans, you can get higher heat from them, which seems like it's well-suited for industrial applications. Light water reactors, my understanding is are closer to maybe 300 Celsius, whereas some of these Gen 4 reactors might be 500 and above. Um, I'm curious, is there an opportunity to um, increase the heat of the steam or, or anything you can do to um, expand the, the addressable market for, for your technology? Yes, the, the, the steam produced from our reactor would be well, roughly, uh, I'm going to give you in, in U.S. units, about 600 degrees Fahrenheit, but it can, it can be, we have the technology to pressurize the steam to make it superheated if necessary, using a technology we call green boiler. So that steam can be, depending on the need for a particular site, we can process that steam further to increase its pressure, to increase its temperature, to increase its superheat, to increase its enthalpy. We can do that. 
Can, can you talk a little bit more about the green boiler? Because I was going to ask about that later on, but m maybe while we're here. A green boiler, yeah, I'll tell you. A green boiler is basically has two functions. One is it will accept energy from anywhere. From the grid, if you have cheap power, you take energy from the grid. From a solar plant, which we have also developed, by the way, that you can, you can put right next to the nuclear plant and capture the energy from the sun. And this the green is concentrated water, solar or photo? Yeah, concentrated solar, yes. And, and um, it, will, it will take steam from the, uh, from the SMR reactor. And it, you can, uh, in the green boiler, add heat to it to increase its pressure, you know, increase its temperature, really. You can do that uh, without any problem. That's what the green boiler does. The solar, concentrated solar, as you know, can be very, very hot. Well, the green boiler will take this. So the green boiler, look at it as first energy preservator. You can put energy heat in there. You're not going to lose much. The rate of loss is very, very low. So you can take energy produced during the day from the sun and use it all night or use it three days later. You know what I mean? So it gives you that capability. The other, you, you use it because it's got a steam generator built in it. So if you crank it up, it will take the heat stored and start giving you steam at the pressure you designed it for. So we, green boiler is the, is the intermediate unit that will allow you to store excess energy. The problem in the economy is also so much of energy gets wasted. You, you, when you're producing, the power demand is in there. So you end up either load following or turning off plants, right? You have peaker plants. All that problem goes away. You put the, any extra energy you produce, you put it in the green boiler and use it when you need it. And this, so, presumably, this would work with any source of, of heat. We don't. It doesn't need to be part of a SMR-160. You could presumably be correct. selling this to others. That is correct, yes, yes. But these are parallel technologies we have been developing. SMR group doesn't want us to offer it to other people, but we will offer it to everyone. I mean, that, you know, we, we'll work with everybody who needs such technologies. One of, one of the things that seems different about your approach and correct me if this is wrong but you're going to be manufacturing the components for the smr 160 whereas the others are relying on the nuclear supply chain and they're more of a technology provider um what advantage does that give you and um and then i have some questions about cost after well that. you know my philosophical approach is if you don't manufacture then you don't know how to design you can put it in bold letters because I have lived that life, I know it. I'm a designer, designed a lot of equipment, and I could not have designed a real good equipment if I did not also manufacture. I'll go to the shop floor and, and ask the welder to show me how to weld, how to really understand what can and cannot be done. And this goes back 50 years, but you know the, the, the idea, I have not never veered from the idea. If you're gonna provide a reactor, we have to know how to build it. And that's how you will make a, a reactor that you can build for the money you estimated. If you don't, 
if another party is manufacturing, you, first of all, you introduce additional cost because each company now has its own overhead and GNA to add to the cost and supply chain. But the, the I call it the MBA school of thought. The MBA, are you an MBA? Yes. You are. Okay. So you will appreciate it. The MBA school of thought is that you minimize, you eliminate waste in your supply chain, right? If you can't manufacture efficiently, then I give it to someone who can. And and use multiple suppliers to compete to get the price down. That's the MBA school of, call it reactor supply, okay? My school of reactor supply is that we, we learn the product by manufacturing. And because we manufacture all the time, we have a an inventory of knowledge about manufacturing that allows us to build, design the equipment better. And that feedback between manufacturing and design, in my mind, is critical, okay? A lot of people think that I'm crazy. They don't, they don't believe in it. Clearly, they don't do it. Westinghouse had, when I started my career back in 1971, Westinghouse had manufacturing plants all over the country. They shut them down because they could buy the same product cheaper from others, smaller manufacturers. Was that a great idea? I didn't think it was a great idea then, and I don't think it is so. So I will always, always, if, as long as I'm in charge of any organization, I would be manufacturing what we designed. If you go to our shop here in Camden, New Jersey, from where I'm talking to you, in that plant you will see perhaps 50 capital equipment under manufacturing at any given time. And it's every one of casks. Is that task could be heat exchangers, you know, capital equipment, general. And you would find that every one of them is designed by us. And a lot of them use our patents. So they're only manufactured here in Canada, no place else in the world. They're based on our patents. But this feedback between design and manufacturing is critical. And you can't have that if you have two different organizations doing it maybe maybe talk to us a little bit about um the plan for um, manufacturing capacity because i think i think i saw some stuff on your website and news announcements about what you're planning to do there there may even be some uh effort to get some lpo money um for that yes. but maybe just, yes. just walk us through that uh if you could well our lpo application is for about 7.2 billion dollars and that involves a, a mega factory that will be five times the size of the plant here. Now, it may be one mega factory or it may be multiple factories of the same size we have here. But increasing the manufacturing capacity uh, is an imperative. It has to be done. If we don't do it, somebody else will have to do it. You know, it has to be done. America's manufacturing capacity has declined severely. In, the, in, my, in my career lifetime. We have to rebuild it. So part because we have a product that we have engineered and we think we'll sell a thousand of these SMR 160s, so we need to manufacture them. And who's gonna make it? So yes, we are, we are on the path to, uh, today there's a state delegation here in my office. I left them to come talk to you. Uh, they are, see how important you are, Mark, 
that that delegation, they have come to talk about manufacturing in their state. That's important to them. I think it's important for our, our national economy. We, we cannot be just a paper-pushing country, you know. We have to manufacture. Yeah, and I think that's one of the hopes that people have for nuclear is if we're going to scale this deployment up, we need to have lots of people that are trained in building these things and, and really a, a workforce that's um, um, much different than what we have today. Curious to hear what your thoughts are on cost reduction. So there's this whole first-of-a-kind, nth-of-a-kind conversation that people have, and I think generally speaking, the thought is the nth-of-a-kind would be maybe 50% of the cost of the first-of-a-kind. But I'm curious, you know, given your integration approach and the, the size of your plant and how you're looking to build it, how are you seeing those costs starting and then finishing? Yeah, we have considerable experience in this area. You know, we would design a cask first time, build it, and then we'll build 10 more. And this happens quite routinely here. Our reduction in cost, uh, it, depends, it depends on how much energy and thought you put in the first design. Generally, generally, people don't put in as much energy and thought uh, because they're busy trying to get the license from the NRC. The critical step is how much, how much planning of manufacturing evolutions have you done? Most cases, people don't do any. We do extensively. As a matter of fact, people ask us to put a price for the system. We say not yet, not until we finish that step. Then we know what the cost would be. And we think that whatever we do, the first one, the next one would be NS1 will be 30% less. That's our, not 50%. If it's 50%, then we are failing. Right. The first one's too expensive if it's 50%. <laughs> how, how many units do you think you need to deliver um, to get to that 30% reduction? And I'm curious, oh, you know, the, the DOE five. has, you think five. five? Yeah. Okay. So do you, I think DOE said five to 10. They, they had that nuclear liftoff report, which I'm, I'm sure you saw, but they had said, five to 10 in the order book, but I think that it was more like 10 to 20 delivered of the same kind to get to nth of a kind cost. I'm just curious from an industry perspective, you know, not asking about whole tech, but just more broadly, how do you see that, that projection? Is that, you think that's going to be accurate? Well, you know, the, the, the manufacturing of the entire plant consists of hundred different manufacturing Travelers' steps, right? You you have to build whether you build the steam generator, you build the uh, pressurizer, you build the reactor vessel, build a slew of uh, other tanks and heat exchangers, and then of course people are you're buying standard turbines, so there's no no savings there. Uh, condenser, MSRs, there there is a lot of equipment that each one has its own um, challenges, and some of them because of prior experience that we have would be less efficiency improvement realized. Others where we have not built before, there will be more efficiency realized. But mostly I look at savings as once we build one, we see what we can do by way of fixturing and automation. Because that is where savings are. And you can't, you cannot as much as we simulate and we can't catch them all. So we, we basically, as we're building the first one, we're drawing lessons from it, and then we will buy robots, we will buy fixturing equipment, 
to make the next one more more efficient. And that will be in if you think of the plant as hundred parallel manufacturing and construction operations going on, each one will have its own learning curve. Some would some would go faster, some would go slower, but ultimately they all our cask manufacturing, for example, today has matured, where if you come to our plant, they'll tell you this robot was put in 2018. This one came in 2016. It's all a process of development. You know, how do you, as you become familiar with the challenges in making a system or equipment, you develop the necessary tools to make your process more efficient. Maybe you could talk to us about customer prospects a little bit for SMR160. So I think I, I saw something about UK and, and Czech Republic, but um, talk, talk to us, take us around the world and talk about the, the opportunities you have and maybe what you think your timeline is to having a, a unit in commercial operation. Well, to answer your last question, we expect our first unit to be in commercial operation by 2030, possibly 2029. That's our first uh, an easy answer to give. And where is that? Uh, well, that is, I'm going to tell you that, you know, we have two pathways. One is to build at a nuclear plant we already own, uh, Palisades being one where we are restarting that plant. God willing, we will restart that plant. If we restart the plant, that will be the natural site to put in two more SMRs there. That has got everything going. Environmental impact has been done. The site is approved. It's an operating reactor. There is land there to put in the additional units. So that will be the natural one. We also while have... well, you're on that, Chris, just where where is Palisades in the approval process? Um, right now, Palisades. NRC has indicated that they are not going to consider uh, Palisades to be a new license. It will be reinstating the existing license. Uh, that makes it a lot simpler. So clearly, the regulator does not look at, at it as a safety challenge. Uh, and we think that in a year to 18 months, we will get through that process with the regulator. Um, the state of Michigan seems to be supportive, which is very critical. The state is. They are supportive, and the DOE loan office also seems to be supportive. So this all will come together by this fall. We should be, we should be uh, most likely green light to go, or we find a problem and time us and we don't do it. But if Palisades goes forward, then SMR 160's first place of birth will be in Palisades site, most likely, because it's just so ideal. It cuts two years off of your schedule. If you don't have to do a high metal impact statement, you don't have to worry about all the support grid infrastructure, you know, switch switch yard, all the the paraphernalia that goes with power generation. It's already there. So we 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 look at that as a good good opportunity. We also have Oyster Creek plant here that we own. If the state of New Jersey were to be equally aggressive, that will become a viable site. Uh, but it depends on the state. The state has to, you know, the first mover states have to have to belly up to the bar to, to put some. How many decommissioned sites around the country do you think are, I don't even know how many decommissioned um, sites there are at this point, but 
how many would be potentially eligible? Is there a certain period of time where, you know, it's been decommissioned and it can it couldn't qualify for for this type of thing? They're all eligible, but the public opinion is not the same around each plant. Uh, some plants, for example, we own Pilgrim in Massachusetts. Uh, they are kind of overtly anti-nuclear still. So we're not going to think about proposing a plant there. Indian Point, which we also own, uh, is not a hospitable site for putting a nuclear reactor. So we're not going to do it there. On the other hand, Oyster Creek is. People want it. And the state has to basically, as I said, has to belly up to the bar because it will cost them some money to uh, get it built there. And Michigan is for sure. Okay. How about outside of um, the United States? What is the opportunity set looking like? Outside of the United States, uh, I put countries in two categories. One, that are desperately in need. Others, uh, to be nice to have. Okay, and, and they plan ahead and they will they will have to come on board. UK, you know, is, is, is not facing an energy crisis. UK has closed all their coal plants. So they no longer have this, you know, the, the coal problem to deal with. Uh, but they would, they're a far, far-sighted country. They are planning and they're gonna have, um, they're gonna have more nuclear energy and SMRs. And we expect to engage with them the contract soon, we hope to, we will see. But then there is Ukraine. Ukraine's coal power plants have been devastated by Russian attacks and they need to build yesterday. So they have basically worked out in their strategic plan that we will, we will build for them 20 SMR-160s in their country at the existing coal plants as soon as shooting stops. We will, we will look to do that, and they will regulate it themselves. They, are, they have a very strong regulatory authority. They are going to begin work evaluating our design, so in a year or so, two years perhaps, licensing is behind us, uh, and we will begin manufacturing. We may put up a manufacturing plant there, so we can efficient. Building 20 SMRs is a big deal. We'll have to so that's Ukraine for you. A third country in that category is India. India is uh, producing enormous amount of coal energy, and the environment is badly polluted. It has it deteriorated in the past 10 years as the country has industrialized. So for them, it's a crying need. And we have been in conversations with the Indian authorities on possibly doing a deal. So far, there is no deal. There is also the barrier of 810, uh, federal federal law, that prohibits us from engaging too deeply with India. So once that is all behind us, then we will we expect to build at least 100 there, you know, in the next 10, 15 years. Well, this is a huge business, Mark. It is a, the, the, uh, the total SMR nuclear business will be over a trillion by 2050. It's enormous because it is needed. So if we think there's, I, I have to, I guess I have to think about what a trillion works out to in gigawatts of deployment, but if there's, I don't know, 
400 to 600 gigawatts that need to be deployed of new nuclear between now and 2050. And I don't know what, what your number is. I'm curious if you have a thought on that, but how much of it will be smaller reactors like what you're doing versus more conventional, you know, gigawatt size that, that we're used to? I think that the new generation of reactors uh, will supplant the old ones um, simply because the new ones are designed with much greater emphasis on safety. The knowledge of how to make them safe today is exists. That was only peripheral thought in 1960s when the, this generation of reactors came about. So I think what's going to happen is what I got them telling you in the beginning of the, our conversation. We, we have single loop, 160 megawatt. We're going to have two loop. That will be 350 megawatt. Then we're going to have four loop, that will be 700 megawatt. That is how it will creep up. But I don't think uh, that a standard large plant that have been built uh, have too much of a shelf life, you know, in, in the uh, uh, simply because they were built with a different approach. They were built with multiple safety systems. One. If one fails, go to the other. The other fails, go to the next one. And that's how, you, if you look at the European reactor, the uh, that uh, Arriva cells is loaded with safety systems. But that's an approach, right? That is an approach to reactor design. I think that has fallen out of favor. And the reason is because it makes the reactor expensive. The alternative approach, where you go towards simplicity and rely like on gravity, makes much fewer systems, and you can then build it up. You can go from 160 to 350 to 700 on the same platform. So that's our approach. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious how you're approaching NRC licensing in the United States or how you're planning to um, you know, there's uh, some that are going part 52 now, um, but for a first of a kind reactor, uh, you know, you, my understanding is you would sort of need to be wedded to that design and, and not able to make any changes. Whereas with part 50, you can be a little bit more flexible, but I'm just curious of your philosophy around that. Yeah. Part 70, uh, part 52 the regulator doesn't have enough experience in Part 52, neither does the industry. And regulations take some time to incubate and become road-tested. And that takes time. And we don't want to be the guinea pig. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's an uncertain process for um, in, in that domain. Uh, 52 is a good idea. We will file for 52 after we have built a few under Part 50, matured the design, matured the details, and we'll put it in for 52. Not right now. Right now is Part 50. Yep. And we are developing the PSAR. We, are, we have a couple sites in mind, as I indicated to you. So we are going to submit with that site application. Mm -hmm. That will happen next year. One of the criticisms of NRC that I've heard is, you know, this, the, the process is, is long, but, um, even if we scale up, uh, the deployments, just the capacity of the NRC to review these things is, is not going to be there. So I'm curious, 
how are you seeing that as a bottleneck to you know the opportunity for growth here and and is there is it realistic that you know we'll have another maybe i think there's a part 53 that was sort of in motion um that that could make make things more streamlined how how do you see that playing out well nrc you know is struggling with with uh, manpower you know staff resource issues just like all of us are we are all going into the same pool of talent and there is a food fight for the talent. There's not enough people. Um, we are we are dealing with it in some ways by opening offices overseas. Uh, we have an office in Ukraine, and our plan is to build that up to 500 engineers in the next two or three years. They have the engineers, they don't have work. So it's ideal for us. We will hopefully also build on our existing office in India if the if the government-to-government -government relationship allows that to happen. So we have to make, make up for it. That is, NRC can't do that. They have to find in the domestic market people to work for them. So they have a real uh, resource problem. But I tell you, as, a, as an agency, uh, the, the rules under which they operate, I think they have excellent public service. They do an excellent job of serving the industry with the resources they have. They'll freely admit to you that, you know, we just don't have the reviewers. You'll have to wait two more months and I totally understand it. But they are organized. They are a process-bound agency. So they, the rules they put in place, they follow them. Uh, that is not true for other regulators overseas, let me tell you. Some of them behave like they run a medieval kingdom. You know, they basically tell you what is gonna be and they can change their mind and there is no recourse. That's not true with the NRC. So I personally, I'm a fan of the NRC because I deal with regulators all over the world and I see how much better they are. Now in the absolute, of course they can improve themselves and there is always an effort in, in our country to improve every government agency. And, and I think NRC will improve. They're having them uh, subject to the scrutiny of uh, outsiders and, and they're looking at it. They're looking at NRC, and they've asked me what I suggest should be their improvements. It's a good process. I'm very proud of the way our country does these things. I really am proud. That's not the case in other countries. No matter how, uh, which agency, whether it's FAA or NRC, they get feedback, knowledgeable feedback from the industry and then they work on it. Congressional office, uh, they, they work on it. So NRC is, I, I would say, we should give them a break. We shouldn't be uh, so hard on them. Right, I mean, if we look at the safety track record of the two agents, of the industries uh, for the two agencies you just mentioned, um, it's impeccable. So it is working. I, I wanna, we just have a few minutes left here. You've been so gracious with your time, but one of the challenges that people see when we've got all these first of a kind uh, designs that are out there, and the need to build five or 10 reactors before you get to nth of a kind, um, why is a customer gonna sign up for a first of a kind unit without a significant amount of government support? You're absolutely right. How does that, how does that, how does that work out? Uh, government has to step in and provide support. Government is, the, without that, it would be difficult to light the fire under this industry, you know, and meaningful in a proper way. Uh, that is essential. 
uh, I see that there is effort underway to to provide solution you know, uh, support for early movers. Um, hopefully, it will come to a place where first movers will get the support. Uh, I don't mean a government handout, but I mean a, a well-calibrated support so you don't spoil the supplier industry. You keep, you know, you keep their feet to the fire, but you give them the help necessary to get past this initial two challenges. One, first-of-a-kind cost, which is more, and second, public acceptance. If public were to to say, yes, come put it in my football field. And that's about our SMR takes two football fields, okay? We can come put it in here. And if there is a a, a call for that, there is support for the for the public to 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 uh, for for our our reactor, then that takes away one big problem. The second problem is, of course, the problem with the first mover costs, and and there the government has to step in. I think uh, maybe just to kind of wrap it up, if investors or um, people are following, you know, the the progress of Holtec and and your SMR, um, what what should we be looking out for over the next maybe twelve to eighteen months in terms of announcements or milestones? I guess you know, movement on Palisades approval is sounds like one, um, but maybe you could just sort of talk about that and then and leave us with any any closing thoughts that you may have. Well, you know, there, there, there is. Uh, we have plans and aspirations. <laughs> the actual outcome depends on a lot of factors, right? Right now, uh, for example, there is there is a strong support for Palisades. If you asked me six months ago, I would have told you, chances are thirty percent. Yes, today I would say sixty percent. Okay, so these things, they change, and that depends on a lot of factors. Uh, we, we hope that we get the first SMR application turned in next year under Part 50 uh, someplace. It may be Palisades, it may be Oyster Creek, it may be a customer, uh, you know, who, is, who really looks at this as a golden opportunity to become a leader in in, in clean energy, nuclear generation, can be a variety of factors are at play. It's very, very difficult to tell. And we are not, uh, we are not uh, uh, predicating our business plan on whether it happens in 2024 or 2025. Uh, you know, we are in it for the long haul. We have many product lines uh, that are all doing fine. Uh, so the company will continue to generate the capital, the cash, to to support its uh, indulgences like SMR160. <laughs> you know, we'll continue to do that. We have been at SMR160 since 2011. And all this time, we have funded ourselves. You know, so DOE has been gracious to support us in the past couple of years. It has accelerated our program. If they support us more, we'll go even faster probably a good place to leave it. Dr. Chris Singh, founder, CEO of Holtec, really appreciate the time. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. And your questions are quite enlightened. You clearly follow the industry intelligently and diligently. Thanks for joining us. 
Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.